This episode is brought to you by Upside, one of DC's fastest growing tech startups. Upside's looking for innovative engineers who want to disrupt the norm, and they're always hiring. Check out upside.com slash team to learn more. Welcome, everyone, to episode 45 of Full Stack Activism. I'm here with my great friend, Jamie Hampton. Hi, Astrid. Just a reminder, we're still greater than code here, even though it is what we're talking about today. Um, and I'm here with my great friend, Caroline Ada MP. Hi, everybody. It's wonderful to be with you today. I do want to give a content warning for more sensitive listeners. We will be discussing sexual assault today. So if this is a topic that you might find triggering, you might want to skip this episode. And I'm happy to introduce my friend, Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, thank you. And it is my great honor to introduce today our guest. Lynn Siren Conway is a full-stack developer, project manager, and activist. She's also a black polytrans lesbian. She does most of her work with connections and community, the queer trans community in particular. Lynn, welcome to the show. Hey, it's cool to be here. So we always like to start our show with uh, superhero origin stories. So what is your superpower and what freak accident caused you to acquire it? The very, very slow motion uh, freak accident that caused my superpower was just my parents making me do way too much stuff when I was little all the time. Like get keep a 4.0 and also mow the lawn every day and also like make sure you clean the whole house and hey, here is your four brothers and sisters who need their help with homework too. By the time I hit like college and stuff, it was nothing. Like I could just write Python for 30 hours straight and it was like a cakewalk as opposed to trying to like take care of a whole house. So I like to say like, yeah, I'm just phenomenally driven, which sounds like it's like one of those things where it's like, what is your greatest weakness? It's actually a strength, but no, I just kind of (laughs) work through everything all of the time. Now, that is totally a superpower. I'm glad you were able to pull that from that experience. Lynn, um, you talked about going to college. What, um, where did you go to school and what did you study and did you finish? Yeah, so I did this thing where I, um, in retrospect, it's probably fairly standard for web developers, at least. Um, I went to college for one year each in mechanical engineering, material science, and then astronautical engineering. And the last one is where I got to work in NASA for a bit, which is like I did six months at, at like in astronautical engineering. So I could say I could work at NASA for the rest of my life. Kind of worth it. But like as of the NASA thing, it was uh, I think I was working on some Python code for something like some Python simulation of some launch satellite planning. And the Python was actually more interesting than the works at NASA planning satellite paths part. Which is like weird because satellites, right? But like truly Python was more interesting. I stopped at about there to um it wasn't obvious to me at the time like I was gonna go learn Python in my free time instead, but it just sort of slowly happened over the next year or so. And do you still write primarily in Python? I um was just shit posting about how much I wanna improve PIP like twenty minutes ago. Um That's the Python of, package manager? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of my whole life. How long have you been doing open source work? I have this thing about, I don't know, I'm just sort of naturally taken to radical openness. I have a a saying where I'm like, if someone can't see that I wrote code, I don't feel like I wrote it. Um, So like all of my all of my first stuff, uh, actually, I first started coding when I was homeless, coincidentally. And all of that is still on GitHub. If I deleted it, it's because it's trash. But like, it's been, I don't know, six years. And I try to post all of my stuff in like in GitHub and mirror it in GitLab because politics and stuff like that. I've heard from some early career developers that it's really helpful for them to see more established developers have their beginner projects or their, their learning projects and their toy projects on GitHub for a couple of reasons, it kind of demonstrates that there's a learning path that even more more experienced developers have followed to get to where they are, and they can kind of see themselves in that learning path. Have you ever gotten feedback from anyone about some of your early projects or your toy projects or your learning projects like that? Not specifically, interestingly. I don't know. I tend to present myself so strongly like even just now i'm reading the chat and i did that again where people take me at my individual point that i'm at right now and just kind of marvel a bit 
without really, I don't get a lot of people being like, oh, how did you get here? You're so hardworking. You've been doing this for years. And I don't like, I don't get that. It's, I don't, I've never really thought about it, you know? Fair. So Lynn, when did you first actually start writing code? Because I know that you mentioned you did it in college, but were you doing it before? I mean, I did the very standard, like basic college student thing of, um, I did this uh, first Lego League robot thing, which is really cute. A bunch of like really basic GUI programming. I tried to take APCS for a little bit, but got bored because it's C and Java, which is so dramatically different from the Python and Ruby that I use now. And yeah, in college, I had a bit of like, like some Python and some Perl and some Java and some MATLAB just because it was mildly relevant to the, the real subject matter. Um, I didn't really start writing code of my own accord until I got to San Francisco and was homeless. And I was like, what do I do? Hmm, San Francisco, write code? I guess so. Yeah. Can you tell us more about how you got to San Francisco? At around the same time, I was in my third year in college and like I was I was doing all of this really cool stuff. I started realizing that I was queer and trans as cool as the whole like Python to Lance Master Satellites thing was. I would rather have just been really gay and a girl. And like I was doing that in D.C., which it's not terrible, but it wasn't great. And I was just kind of like, I'm pretty sure there was a point at which I just kind of Google searched online, like good places to be gay in. And San Francisco is usually near the top of that list. So I ended up there. Uh, and I told my parents, I was like, Hey, I'm going to college in San Francisco, but really I was just going to San Francisco to like be gay and live life. And then I just kind of was like in a homeless shelter, not knowing what the hell I'm going to do. And then I, you know, like, I, I think I, like, bumped into someone who was doing, like, a homeless queer youth thing. Um, yeah, it was when I, like, I, like, bumped into Monica and Bridge, I think. Um, they were uh, Maven youth. And, like, I hadn't thought about, like, coding for real then, but I'd written Python before, and I was there, and I had nothing to do, so I started, like, getting into it. I mean, it's in the context of I've been writing code a little bit my whole life, but I didn't really lean into it until I was in San Francisco. Was there a program that you were in to get your career started, or was it just the individual efforts of the people that you mentioned? My specific way that I got started was my, um, I have a very activist mindset, um, and so I, I leaned myself to that direction. That plus my, like, I just want to work all the time combined with I really like putting everything open source. I would do the thing where, like, a lot of people at, um, Mozilla in particular in San Francisco. And when I was at Dominion Unit, there was a lot of that where people would just kind of let themselves be available for new coders. And I would like, I would like talk to them. And the thing that I noticed with people I mentor nowadays is that I'm really receptive to, or I'm really aware of when I'm talking to a new coder or someone just getting started, um, whether in like the um, days or weeks after I talk to them, I see them doing a lot of work. But like my ass was homeless and I really love GitHub and open source. And so like, I would like, I don't know, talk to like a, like an engineer at Mozilla about blah, 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 code. And then like after the conversation, I would just like push some random beginner level Python code like every hour for the next four days, you know? And I think that just sort of like, that's just sort of helped with like this visibility avalanche where I was like talking to people who like, like code, but also kind of activism. And I just kept doing things all of the time. It wasn't very formal, but it was very structured on my part. Like I had meetings with people who did PR stuff and I was like, like, Hey, what things should I be tweeting about? Should I have another Twitter account? Like, like, should I like post my GitHub to my Twitter? Is that too spammy? Like, how should I be connecting with people? And I had, I did a lot of that. That's really amazing. Uh, I really respect like your, let's just do this attitude that I'm, I'm getting from listening to you talk. While you were kind of in that zone talking to people and getting that kind of advice is there any particular like piece of advice that really stuck out to you and like like really affected how you did things that you remember that you might want to share with other people i can't think of anything specifically this wasn't advice per se as something i was just really inspired by um in my like very early days of uh hanging out at dublin union i ran into i forget who i ran into first it was either ash or shanley or um, Ash Wright and or Stanley Kane. And it was when they were starting up um, AlterConf and ModelView Culture, respectively. And that was the first time I'd, I'd run into someone like being in an existing industry with a lot of existing infrastructure and just being like, 
you know what? I don't like all of the rest of y'all's stuff. I'm just going to start my own, like just from zero. I don't like your thing. My thing's going to be better and I'm going to do it myself. Sort of that mindset I hadn't encountered before personally. And so I was like, wait, I can just do whatever. Like I can look at their thing, say I don't like it and then do something else. And then people respect me. Right. And so I get this thing nowadays of like people like, how did you plan out your path? And did you go through any programs? And what was the structure and blah, 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 blah. And really it was just having a lot of energy and being shown that I can just do whatever and then proceeding to do that. That's interesting. I've run across this idea in writing that you have some million words of crap inside you and you need to just get them out as part of the process of you know getting better at what you do. So it sounds like you were already set up to do that, but you were also in this environment where you got access to a lot of feedback, so you're able to make the most of that uh, that phase of your development as well. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I had a really interesting time where um, when I was first starting out, I, I had a lot of people who were who were very like, oh, this is a new coder. I'm going to like criticize them on Python syntax arbitrarily, like every 30 minutes for a week. And then a lot of people who just sort of, who, who were talking to me about culture and visibility and how to get myself out there at a time where I was just really driven to like self-improve. I really appreciate what you're saying about seeing other people's <laughs> stuff that you don't like and making your own. And I think that's like a really good segue to bring us into this project that you've been working on that um, I'd really like to hear more about, uh, Project Callisto. Can you start to give us the background on that? The way I like to describe it to other tech people is it's Google Docs for sexual assault reporting. The main hook there is that in the absence of Callisto, the usual thing that you have to do at a school to report sexual assault is that you have to go to a physical office in person and usually recount the story one to three times, like verbally, which as a millennial, I just kind of die inside every time I have to convey that information as opposed to just filling out a form online. On the um, Project Callisto website, there are some really chilling statistics it says that survivors of sexual assault wait an average of 11 months to report their assaults to authorities. Less than 10% of survivors will even report their assault at all, and that up to 90% of assaults are committed by repeat perpetrators. The other thing that I found really striking is that the project website says that an estimated 20% of women, 7% of men, and 24% of trans and gender nonconforming students are sexually assaulted during their college career. So I definitely understand how difficult it would be for a survivor of a sexual assault to go to a physical office and make that report and have to relive it multiple times through the retelling, what does Project Callisto do differently to address that difficulty? It's sort of really basic to say that just putting up a, a, a form online is like such a dramatic difference, you know, from having to say it in person. There are some other things that we do that are very specific to the impact that we have. We're very much about the survivor having a very clear idea of what the system is doing and how the information that they are providing to the system is impacting the surroundings and who it's being communicated to. Think about that in sharp contrast to like you tweet something on Twitter and you have no idea about like who it's going to or like you're posting on Facebook, but actually Walmart is reading it, you know, sort of like the radical opposite of that of your information is encrypted at rest and only you can see it until you explicitly say that you want to send it to your like school reporting source. So Lynn, how does that process of keeping your information private while you're recording it change what happens for the survivor and how they navigate through the system as opposed to going and having to say it verbally and then not knowing what happens with that information? It's almost so much of a large psychological sh like shift in how you think about the information that I'm not I'm not even sure I could describe it's it's their differences one to one. I think about this like in, with this idea that um so I I talked to a lot of psychologists in my life um and psychologists are man are mandated reporters. I've had some issues that would need to be mandated mandated to report in my life and. I, I'm talking to psychologists, but the psychologists help me. But I know they're a mandated reporter, and I have I have events in my life that needed that would need to be mandated to report. And I I couldn't say that I don't have that that hasn't happened to me. You know, like I really honestly could not say. I almost can't even conceptualize by contrast, like just with, with a contrast, the idea of like I'm on a website 
which like, I, yeah, I think of most websites as then like the Twitter, Google, Facebook, like you say something and the whole internet knows it and they want to sell you something with it. And I'm going to a website that is so explicitly not that, that like, it's just, it's almost like, it's like my private journal, but on the internet with a password. I can't even get that with a physical private journal. I never own a journal for lock on it. And that's kind of essentially what this is. It's something that I feel very comfortable with when I'm working on. Um, I'm sort of working on it and I, I'm always, whenever I'm like, I'm just like passing variables around or I'm like, oh, like this variable is actually literally what verbatim happened to your, during your assault. But I can't access it. Like I couldn't pull it out unless we're in that little middle bit right before the, uh, the encryption sets in. Like it's not like I'm going to accidentally expose someone's data by having a typo somewhere, right? For me as a developer, whenever I'm going through the form writing, I sort of have a very, because I make it, I have a very strong understanding of like how the security practices come to play and sort of the, the, the psychological cushion that the psychological questions that we work into the flow of the site and the, the structure. And it's it's very, I don't feel like I'm going to suddenly have the carpet swept from under me and have a cop show up as I exit a room, which I feel like when I'm talking to psychologists, because I'm just at my computer. I like, it could be 3 a.m. and I could be in Canada, you know? My partner has done a lot of domestic violence and sexual assault work for as long as we've been together. So I've, I have a sort of secondhand education in this. And, and my understanding is that, you know, if you've just been sexually assaulted, you've, you've experienced this massive violation, not only of your physical person, but of your, your autonomy. And for, you know, everybody experiences this differently. I'm not telling my own story because I don't have a story of this. But my understanding is that for many survivors, the experience of going and dealing with this system can be re-traumatizing. Uh, because you've just, like I said, you've just experienced this violation of your person and your autonomy. And then you go and you give your story to somebody else. And then they have their own rules about what they're going to do with it, how they're going to react. And you lose a lot of control once you give your story to the official system, like we're talking about a lot of on-campus survivors, right? So if you go to tell the story, there's a the risk of, you know, them expelling your the person who assaulted you. It's a small risk, unfortunately, statistic, statistically speaking, but that could have consequences that you don't want. There's also the possibility that no one will believe you, and that could be a consequence that you don't want. So I feel like giving survivors the control over their own information gives them literally gives them control, which is something that they desperately need at that point in their lives. Yeah, there's an entire um, set of design considerations within Callisto about um, addressing institutional betrayal. And that's, we actually have a lot of bits in the design, not necessarily that have dramatic backend implications, but sort of inform how that the backing communicates your information to other people where there's this idea that the information is encrypted at rest and we never send it to someone unless we explicitly say so. Yeah. There's also quirky like front end bits where there is like an absolute minimum of institutional branding on the Calypso site. There's like a, your school's logo is in the bottom left so you can know you're on the right website. But aside from that, it's, it's all Callisto branding. It's all Callisto servers. We are very clearly a third party who is not your school. Can you explain more about the institutional betrayal? Because I'm not aware of what that is and what happens. I subjectively like to describe it as the idea that if I, as a fucking black, trans, polyamorous, kinky, mostly lesbian kind of bi, like I have like a whole lot of accesses on which if I report a sexual assault, to any person about, for any reason, there's a variety of ways that the institution that I'm reporting to can handle that in a way that is actively harmful to either to me, the person who did the assault, in a way that I don't. And that's sort of one of the, an example that illustrates the core concept of institutional betrayal. Do you have agreements with the, the schools and universities that Project Callisto is wired up to, to sort of address that kind of issue? The idea behind Callisto is that we are providing a service to usually schools to have the very beginning of the reporting process be more effective for the survivor, for the most part. This is something I talk to, to talk to people a lot of in the interviews I was doing recently for another backend engineer, where like, 
feels there's more imperative and ability to create impact ends the second the report hits the reporting school or like the Title IX officer usually. At that point, all of the standard methods of institutional betrayal that you would experience in any institution of any size or just start kicking in, you know, there, there are days where I was like, where I think about how like, I wish if there was a sub bit in Calisto's contract that was like, you can't like, we like make schools explicitly ask if they are like going to report sexual assault to authorities if someone with an with a endangered immigration status is, is involved. But there's nothing like that. We provide them a website and then from there, we help them get the report, you know, and everything else is up to the institution to fix their own impact. I'm really curious about the chain of command with like how the app works. Like, can you walk me through what someone like who would suggest to someone that they use this website and then what would happen to their information after they've put it in? Like, I'm just trying to understand kind of the whole flow. Yeah. Um, so step zero is that we have, I, I don't do it personally because web developer, but we have a, a lot of on-campus advertising, like, you know, bathroom leaflets and little tear out stickers and tiny presentations that we let schools give during sexual assault events and all of those sorts of things. And so ideally, if someone is someone undergoes an assault, they have this idea of a website that they can report it on in their head prior. And then it happens and then they, they can go to the website. The website itself is has a has a few steps to sort of make sure that the people who are reporting are from the school that they're reporting to. So from there you fill out your report and at the very end of the reporting process, which that's the whole like Google for me, you're just filling out fields process. Immediately after that, um there's a page that's like, hey, if you would like to still report your assault. Um, we're going to encrypt it with GPG and we're going to send it to these Title IX officers, their email addresses, right after you like click like a double confirm that this is what you want to do. I wonder why we still don't know enough about sexual assault, what's happening to victims, because it's something that it, it feels like is getting talked about a lot. Like this is happening and like Coraline read those statistics that were on your site about it. But it also feels like something that the people in general know very, very little about. There are strong organizational self-preservation instincts that kick in for people who work for colleges, especially, you know, because they, they want to minimize those uh, sexual assault stats because they make the school look bad. They might result in reduced funding or reduced interest in students coming to their school. Like, they don't want it to be perceived that there's a sexual assault problem, in heavy air quotes, at their school. So they want to pretend that it doesn't happen. Um, and then for individuals uh, who are privileged enough not to have experienced sexual assault, those people don't want to think about it. It's not a pleasant thing to grapple with. And, you know, if you're not directly motivated, if it hasn't affected you or somebody that you know, you know, the it's not like you're going to go, most people are going to go out and just, you know, research this on their own. So there has to be outreach, but there's not a lot of funding for outreach. Frankly, there's not a lot of funding for any of it. So it's like a, a self-perpetuating silence, essentially. Yeah. This isn't necessarily an institutional problem. It's just a it's something that I deal with a lot personally. I like to say that I spend a lot a lot more time digging in Python than I do in English. Um, because I can't really I, I have a hard time parsing the subject matter of what I work on day to day. For example, the uh stats that Coraline read earlier, uh another developer we work with for the one who put those on the site. But I'm going to put those on another site in the next few weeks and I promise you that I won't read them as I'm actually doing it because it's so hard to parse when I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to write Python and Oh, the Python I'm writing says that 30% of people who are sexually assaulted do blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, uh, no, I'm just, nope, nope. It's HTML. I'm not reading it. It's a weird feeling reading those statistics. I think for a lot of people, like whenever I read statistics for like an, about anything bad, really for like an at risk group that I'm in, I get this feeling like, especially for something I haven't experienced, like it's like, you know, this percentage of the trans community has experienced this like terrible thing. And I'm like, wow, like A, that's a lot of my friends. And like B, like it feels like I'm waiting for a shoe to drop. Like this hasn't happened to me. So when is this going to happen to me? 
And it can feel like looking at numbers can feel like very weirdly personally overwhelming in that way, I think. I have a very informal ban on anyone reporting about uh, violence numbers on trans women of color if the person themselves is not a trans woman of color. Like, I have personally chewed out many, many a white trans woman for conveying the black trans women of color. Like, the black sex worker trans woman of color at, like, assault and, like, violence rates just sort of, like, with all this, like, doom and gloom and depression. I'm like, A, that's not you. B, Stop it. I can't deal with this. It's sort of like this weird, like, third level empathy where, like, first level empathy is when someone's saying something bad, you want to help them. But then, like, I'm, like, several steps removed from that where I'm, like, this is bad. It doesn't affect you. It affects me more than it affects you. And also talking about it doesn't really help me. So please stop. It's, it's, very, it's very hard. It's something I have to personally parse, like when I'm working on the front end with a lot of like specific content, I have to personally parse on a daily basis. Lynn, that ties into something I've learned through my own activism, this concept of staying in your lane. There are issues that I feel very strongly about, but there are people who are doing work to address those issues. And I see my role as someone who's maybe not directly affected, and I'm thinking here maybe reproductive rights or definitely as what you said, the violence that trans women of color on sex workers face. So I I try very hard to amplify those voices and support the people doing that work without getting in the way. Do you think that Project Callisto could have been created as well or be successful if it was created by someone who is not themselves a survivor of sexual assault? No, not even vaguely. There are competitors to Callisto. uh, I don't know. I haven't looked at them in depth because I'm not CEO. I know that our organization is coincidentally 100% women right now because who's going to have good ground-level information on the effects of sexual assault? And, like, a lot of us have PTSD from various kinds of trauma. And I'm like, this is the organization that I want to be solving the problem. So we don't want to minimize the uh, experience of male sexual assault survivors. They are a small but definitely present minority. Yes, there's a, there's a very specific thing that we do on the website in various places where there are certain things that women just do culturally that necessarily don't make women a lot more comfortable, but they'll push away men really aggressively. It's not something that I think about on anything near a daily basis because trans women and I can't, yeah. you know, but every once in a while we'll do a content appraisal of like, will male survivors like have a really hard problem with this? Like, you know, if there's like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not the designer. So I just, I just assume it's basic things like too much pink, you know, <laughs> right. but there, it's a, it's a consideration that we go through. There's another stat on the site that uh, I found interesting, uh, which is that you match reports and uh, you allow people to report only if another survivor names the same perpetrator. And uh, you say this is because up to 90% of assaults are committed by repeat perpetrators. And I'm curious, is this something that helps survivors report because they feel like if they are not the only one, there's a much better chance they'll be believed? There's a lot of cultural reasons and psychological reasons why we do that. I think the way I describe it subjectively and reference to my own experiences are there are certain things that I only feel like talking about if I know that they happened more than once or to more than one person. Um, And this is sort of, we have a technical setup that reflects that sort of emotional feeling of like, this thing that happened to me is bad, but I don't really care to talk about it if it happened to other people. And we have code that does essentially that. The Project Callisto website says that during the 2015 to 2016 pilot program, the reporting rate quadrupled on partner campuses. Why do you think it had that kind of impact, Glenn? Me, personally, as someone who's 25, I would also be three to four times more compelled to report a sexual assault if I can do it like on my laptop, in my room, as opposed to in a physical office with someone who I've never spoken to before. I think that sort of speaks to the core fundamental impact of like Callisto as a website where you can report a sexual assault. It's, it's that being it itself being very impactful. I want to talk about the level of technology involved. My perspective on this is that I used to work on an Android app for an NGO in Africa that was doing a kind of similar thing actually, where it was taking data from sexual assault survivors. Um, In their case, the idea was people would go 
to doctors and get like medically checked, but then not feel comfortable going to law enforcement. And there was like a disconnect with people who felt comfortable with, with medical and people who felt comfortable with law enforcement. And so the idea was if the doctor that they're already seeing can take this information in a format that they can just pass on to law enforcement with consent rather than making them go through a traumatic experience again, um, as we were saying earlier with like getting checked out. But like one of our big things that was like a huge focus in the third world, which is where this uh, app was being used, was like keeping it as low tech as possible. Like even though it was a, an app, like we trained the doctors to use it and the survivors never had to do anything on a computer or a phone and they could just let someone else do it for them and then not have to go through that like technological stress. And so I'm listening to you talk about this with college students and talk about like the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I, I love that. Like, it's really interesting with this idea. Like, I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't trust anyone to do it for me. I want to do it all in technology. I guess I don't even have a specific question, but I want to kind of sink my teeth into that concept. Like people who are comfortable with technology or not doing things in the way that's more, most comfortable to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, the other day, actually, my, my comms person is on this call, and I've been meeting and having conversations with them about what are good formal definitions of cutting edge and high tech, right? Um, because I think a few days ago, I was tweeting about how um, I'm using beta versions of NPM, Travis, and some GitHub features. And, like, these features released in the last two or three months. And I, like, usually I personally know their devs. And I'm, like, look, I'm, like, watching their commit logs. And I'm doing this for the sake of pushing Callisto to serve sexual assault survivors better, right? I'm, like, I haven't done this yet, but I have a bunch of planned um, patches to, uh, like, Pip and Django and Python, like, that are that I could trace all the way back to if this patch gets in, it's going to serve sexual assault survivors in this way. And also... It's changing the thing for millions of people because I would be patching the Django. And I'm very, I'm, I like to drill down on that very specifically. I think it's something that I think helps my personal impression of my impact. Um, there's obviously like, because we're a big organization, there's a, there's a larger conversation that happens with respect to like, Lynn, does you spending a month adding Ang AngularJS to the record form so it's async really help a lot of people? I don't know, but I love AngularJS and I get to use NPM when I'm doing it. And also people who are used to async forms would think it's really nice. So those are the sort of things I like to think about with respect to Callisto's tech. Yeah. So when we were, when I found out we were going to be talking about this, I was really excited. And uh, one of the things that it occurred to me, that occurred to me was uh, that looking at it, it, it seems like this should be a fairly bog standard web app. But were there any other aspects of the technical implementation that were particularly interesting? For yeah, for the most part, it's a it's a very basic Django app. Like it's it has a few views that have a few forms on it. Basic Django forms, you know, it could it could be better, but in ways that would be better for all of the Django at once. The only thing I feel that is very specific to Callisto's implementation is the fact that we have integration with Python's GPG library which um, I'm not super used to describing this in depth, but it's the same sort of tech that underpins TLS and HTTPS and um, SSH and all those other sorts of things. And we integrate that on the level right above, we have, we have the Google Forum thing and there's that repo. And right above that repo, there sits another repo that takes all of the, the data that you're going to the Google Forum process with and GPG encrypts, GPG encrypts it before we send it to the, the client school. Um, we have another process where we actually, we take all of the Title IX officers through a GPG key setup process, which if you're a web developer, it's something you've probably done a few times already, but for the Title IX officer, it's totally new. And like, it's a whole new type of password. Like, Public-private key encryption is sort of a concept we have to introduce them to, um, but it's fundamental to how the tech of Callisto works. Lynn, you talked about looking at beta versions of oh. various tools and evaluating or seeing like, oh, this feature is going to really help us with Project Callisto and therefore help survivors. Is that information and context that you tend to share with open source maintainers? And if so, what kind of reaction do you get from them? Oh, I share in spades. I love it. It's one of my favorite things. 
Um, I'll go into someone's repo and they'll have a thing that like, um, I think the most recent time I did it was with, um, there's a the Django migration test case library that runs migrations forward and backwards in a test context. Um, so you can see if the migration's failing. And one day it was when a repo, that repo was only really set up for running the migrations forward. And I wanted them to run the migrations backward. And I was sort of like, I sort of laid it on in layers where I was like, I made the initial issue and I was like, hey, it'd be cool if you could run migrations backward. And then, you know, it kind of, it had a standard open source thing of the, the developer was like, oh, this be cool. I don't even want to work on it. And then like a few weeks later, I was like, hey, I'm working on this sexual assault record form. And I think that if the survivor has a specific kind of data and then I remove that field, I need to be able to write a test to explicitly say that that field is removed because it contains sexual assault data. You know, that would have a really good end user impact on survivor. And then that feature was in in three days. So... Yeah, that's usually how it goes. But there's sometimes when I don't even have to do that. I just sort of like say Callisto and then they Google it and things happen nice. around me. <laughs> it's really nice. I think that speaks well of the Django community that an app like yours is uh, has that kind of credibility and clout. I've had like all totally positive experience with the Django community. Amusingly, I had this thing where the way I like to submit patches to uh, open source projects really grates against the Django itself. Like just me versus the Django. I've had this thing, right? Um, and since I started working on Callisto, either something about how I culturally shift myself for the context of me working on Callisto, when I make issues on the Django, people don't yell at me anymore. <laughs> and that's been nice because <laughs> I'm kind of a shithead about it, but I'm, I'm a shithead about it to help sexual assault survive. So they, they deal with it. <laughs> That's a good um, reason. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, it's basically always been the case that when I'm talking about I'm talking about things and like I, I don't know. I don't know how like the whole PIP core team hasn't like chewed me out because I talk so much shit about PIP on Twitter. But like I feel like if they were to start, they would see Callisto in my bio and be like, oh, um, okay, never mind. Um, and that's sort of how it goes, usually. I think actually that's kind of great because not only are you getting a positive reaction from project maintainers, but I think that as software developers, we tend to not think about the impact necessarily of technical decisions that we make or the tools that we create. And we don't think about the fact that, you know, there are real people doing important work on the other side. You know, our users are doing really critical work. I think too often we might think, oh, in the enterprise, this will have this effect or <laughs> an organization of a certain size, it will make a developer spend 5% less time running tests when in reality, there's very important work like the work that you're doing that relies on the stability and performance and flexibility of the tooling that we're creating. Yeah, it's nice to, it's nice to sort of remind people of that every once in a while. Like, I can almost see it like be between comments and a GitHub issue when I realize that I'm like, I'm not trying to my, like the GitHub issue I just made isn't for making takeout get to my house two minutes faster. It's for helping someone report sexual assault. And you can just sort of feel how much more serious and like driven they get in between two comments when they realize that. Out of curiosity, is it feasible for newcomers to contribute to Project Callisto? It is a degree of feasible that I work every day to make more feasible. I come from a context where previous to Callisto, I was working on Bundler and Ruby Gems, which the projects themselves like to be very accessible, but the actual code for Bundler and Ruby Gems is like almost comically inaccessible. And so, you know, I, I focus a lot on using the, the standard Django patterns for things in our open source repos so that if someone's coming from the context of another, another Django project, they don't have to deal with a lot of like, like Callisto quirks. I have like a bunch of really aggressive linters. I'm like always on the search for like, if I can add a new linter and it doesn't take me like an hour and a half to fix my currently existing stuff, I will. I love it. It's so much fun. Um, and those are sort of things I, I like to think help new project contributors. I, I think it would be good. It would be amazing at some point when we're much larger to have someone who's like, one of their core job competencies is helping Callisto's open source profile so that more people can be using it to solve sexual assault in more nuanced ways. So, Lynn, is, is there any way for people who are not programmers to help contribute to Project Callisto? 
I, I might be corrected on this later, but as far as I know, the only portion of Callisto as an organization is entirely that is significantly open to like general public feedback is the few Django repos. And so it's very, it's very programmery in that sense. Um, and even then, there's not a lot of like translations or documentation in the open source repos. It's mostly Python. Personally, coming from the context of like open source everything and Bundler and all that stuff, like I really, I really want that to get better. But in the meantime, ways to help Callisto are like be a Python developer or like get your foundation to donate a million dollars so we can figure out what to do with it. Have you worked with Fun Club? Not in the context of my individual organization, but I, I know like five or six organizations that have been founded with Fun Club and I like watch their impact before and after. We had a very positive experience with Fun Club. I mean, it's definitely worthwhile. I could see, I could see a thing where I um I could get money for Fun Club, not necessarily in the same um, nonprofit way that Callisto usually gets money, um, which is very operationsy. But I use it in a more specific technical contrast of like I get Fun Club money for like a diff- open source a different part of Callisto, and I'm have I have like a junior programmer working on it for a little bit, and I pay them with the Fun Club money like one to one. I could see that being a thing. I think it's a, an interesting avenue. Um, to explore, particularly because Callisto as an organization is very standard nonprofit. We have very standard nonprofit fundraising, and I've never thought about the like wide network of tech fundraising that I'm also connected with. I think that ties into something that Sam was saying in chat. Um, a lot of people who don't have the time or the energy or don't want to get in the way of the project would be very, very happy to contribute money, knowing that it was being put to good use. Yeah, I think there's even, I don't interact with it much because web developer, there's, yeah, there's like campaigns we do about individual giving. And it's sort of weird because like when I'm hearing about it, it's like operations talking about individual giving. But subjectively for the person hearing about that, it's like giving $5 to help support sexual assault survivors, you know, and that's, that's nice. So for our listeners who may now be inspired to donate, we're going to drop a link to the Project Callisto donation page in the show notes. I'm curious about the decision to have Callisto as an open source project. Um, I know that you were talking earlier about how you really like to be open and transparent, and I really respect that. And I wonder kind of what went into that decision to have this as an open source project and, like, if there were any worries with, like, security and how you, like, mitigated that. I'm not sure I can really give an answer to that that isn't, like, like very focused on how open source does it better, like particularly the security <laughs> thing, where I if I think about any any system that I could possibly think of and I subject it to I subject it to open source scrutiny, I for a certain level of scrutiny, like if if you get five people looking at it, it's the security is gonna get better because five five different people are gonna have five different opinions about how to make it more secure that they wouldn't be able to give if the the repo was closed source. Um, and that's sort of one of the fundamental tenets of open source and security that I like to spit off whenever I need to. The fact that Callisto is open source is very chicken and egg for me because I like to recreationally license a lot of my personal projects as AGPL, right? Um, and then the person who was hiring for Callisto at the time was like, hey, would you like to work here? And I was like, well, let me look at it. Oh my God, you you license ATPL on like a sexual assault reporting platform and it's in tip. I love it. I love it. So it's just kind of already here. You know, I was like, this is amazing. I do this personally myself too. And it was really funny actually because I had a personal conversation with the hiring manager at the time and she had the same sort of like, yeah, we know that lots of closed source developers hate ATPL. So I like to license it explicitly and point it out twice just so you know, oh yeah, this is here. And yeah, we don't care that you are like annoyed that you can't use our code in like the next web hub because we don't want you to. Callisto itself is only for U.S. schools. And so we have a lot of plans with places where Callisto itself couldn't really be effectively deployed for them to like use their open source repo to have their own sort of impact. I don't know the extent to which those plans are public yet, but yeah, we have that's sort of another thing that it being open source helps at. So, Lynn, is there anything particularly exciting about uh, how you've done this that we haven't talked about that you'd like to? I had a call recently with a non-school client that I'm not sure I'm supposed to mention who it is. They asked me very pointedly about to what extent is Callisto shared it on all like all, all of the sites and is the code the same and blah, blah, blah. That's like my favorite topic because I've spent the last six months like going from a really like 
standard kind of basic copy and pasty SQL dump process to like this thing where we have like 13 client schools, but one Heroku app. And like we like have like Heroku pipeline set up and Travis build stages and smoke tests and all kinds of automated deploys that kick off every like hour. Um, and I think that's really, I don't know, it's it's sort of hard to conceptualize that impact on like survivors. But when we're talking to clients and they're like, yeah, how often do you update your code? And like, is our code the same as everyone else's? And I'm like, yes. And like every three hours minimum, probably, you know, um, and I think that's really cool. So at the end of every show, we'd like to take a moment to reflect on the conversation that we've had. And I wanted to share a couple of things. I do a lot of thinking about empathy. Um, I'm writing a book on empathy and software development. And I think this is an excellent example of developers putting the psychological safety of their users first and thinking about the way the tool is going to be used and how that impacts the real people on the other side of the screen. And Lynn, I think you've done an amazing job in really bringing that empathy to bear in every step of the process, every step of the development process and the deployment and how you're presenting it to the world and how you're working with partner campuses. And um, I think that's absolutely amazing. I also wanted to share a video that I came across recently. Um, Someone did an animation for a talk by Brene Brown on the difference between empathy and sympathy. I think everyone should watch it, but one of the really poignant things that stood out to me is that when you're listening empathetically, you never use the words at least. And then that's a a big difference between sympathizing with someone and empathizing with someone. I'll put a link to the video in the show notes. When we were talking about your process, Lynn, for how you get new features added by talking with the open source community, explaining how if this was here, it'd be much better for your users. It was really inspiring to me because I know that there's a lot of discussions that people have about how to use technology for good or how to be more involved with things that people really need and not just build technology for technology's sake. And I feel like that is a great example of how when you are thinking about people and you're really focused on what the outcome of what you're using or what you're building is going to be, that there are a lot of great developers who are ready and hoping that they're, what they do can make an impact. And I think it's nice to hear that there's people out there who are thinking in that way and who are willing to put in the extra time to get that done so that you can have a feature available within a few days, especially since a lot of what we hear is about how many developers are very selfish and very obsessed with their own you know, technological growth. So it's nice to know that there's a bigger community out there there that doesn't get talked about as much that is working on behalf of trying to help other people too on the day to day i almost wish i had more really small asks of the open source libraries that we use like whenever i realize that i have an issue in Callisto that can make a really good github issue that someone could fix in a day i'm like oh yeah i get to do this thing again you know to me this whole conversation has been really inspiring to me and i think it's all coming back to this thing that was said at the beginning about if you don't like what someone else is doing, you can do your own thing and you can make it happen. And I'm feeling very inspired by that right right now. I saw, I've been thinking about this already a little bit lately. I saw a thread on Twitter earlier this week, kind of in the wake of um, some of like the Google memos and stuff and all of this that's been going on in our industry. And someone was like, you know, you can start your own company you don't have to work for a company that's going to treat you badly. You can start your own company and you can make the rules and you can hire people and you can treat them well. And there's nothing stopping you from doing that in theory, hopefully. And like you could really be making a difference if you decided to do that. And that was very inspiring for me to read. And I think that like ties into kind of what we're talking about here too. Just like, you don't have to tag along on someone else who's making a difference. Like you can make your own. And I'm really inspired by you, Lynn, and everything that you've been working on. But I also love the idea that other people could go on and do other great things that are inspired by it, that are touching other parts of our community. 
I had a sort of natural reaction to, I think you're specifically referencing the really misogynist Google memo. And I had like a very naturally dismissive reaction because um, our dev team is entirely female. It's me and I'm great. So uh, bye. Like what? I'm really happy that that's how you felt about it. (laughs) I feel really good about that. I was actually contacted by a young woman that I used to mentor. My initial reaction was, you know, this is just typical of Silicon Valley programmers. But she reached out to me and said that she was actually very emotionally affected by it because it it made her question how her peers at companies that she's worked at or working at currently think about her and the unspoken bias and the unspoken sexism and how that's affecting her career and her career choices. So I did tweet about this, but as a sort of call to action, if you know people who are early career, if you know people who are feeling very vulnerable, don't assume that they react in the same sort of nonchalant way or the same sort of, yes, we've seen this before kind of way to things like the Google memo, reach out to them and see how they're actually being affected. All right. So I have a call to action for our listeners today. And uh, some of you may be inspired to go and try to contribute to uh, Lynn's repository, and that's great. Um, But there's something that every single one of you can do, uh, and that is fucking believe survivors. Ash Dryden wrote a really great piece uh, probably four years ago now called The Risk in Speaking Up, and I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. Um, But she talks about all of the various forces that might keep somebody from disclosing that they were uh, a survivor or that they survived an attempt at sexual assault. And there's a lot, you know, the TLDR is there's a lot of reasons not to say anything. Um, So if somebody does disclose that to you, the very least you can do is believe them. And, of course, for that to happen, you also have to be the sort of person that somebody feels safe disclosing to. And uh, I'll leave that as an exercise for the listener. But that's it, really. Fucking believe survivors. Lynn, thank you so much for coming on our show and talking about your work. And thank you, more importantly, for the work that you are doing and the impact that you're having on a very, very vulnerable part of our population. So thank you so much for that. This has been a difficult conversation for a lot of us on the panel, and it's probably a difficult conversation for some of our listeners to hear, but we feel like it's very important, and it's important to to talk publicly about these kinds of issues and about how people in our community can make a difference. This episode is brought to you by Upside, one of DC's fastest-growing tech startups. Upside's looking for innovative engineers who want to disrupt the norm, and they're always hiring. Check out Upside.com slash team to learn more. Upside is our first corporate sponsor, but we're looking for more so that we can continue to bring you great episodes like the one you've heard today. If your company values diversity, inclusivity, and the kinds of in-depth conversations that we have here in Greater Than Code, please talk to them about sponsoring the show. A prospectus is available at greaterthancode.com slash sponsors. Thank you.